Welcome to the Docs of Running podcast, where we, a group of Docs of Physical Therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. We are so glad to be together. It is just David, Matt, and I. It's been a while since the three of us have been together. Super fun to be back. It's for episode number 104, and we have a full slate for you all. Full disclosure, we've tried recording this podcast three other times, and we've had various technological issues. So we've gone over some of this stuff a couple times already, and we're going to try again. So let's hope it works out this time. We don't have any more tech glitches. Uh, Anyway, episode 104, full slate. We're really excited about it, actually. The first thing we're going to be talking about is something that was inspired by a follower who commented on uh, one of our YouTube videos. We're going to dive into his idea and his thoughts because we do want to give it some time because we thought it was a really good point. And then we're going to dive into one of the most common running-related injuries, one of those things that's in the top five of things that keep runners from running or running pain-free. So we're going to dive into patellar tendinopathy. We're going to talk about the anatomy of the patella. We're going to be talking about rehabilitation, some risk factors, what kind of things you need to work on, uh, especially if you've had it, to prevent it from coming back again. So it should be a lot of fun. It's one of those things that we love to do in working with runners as PTs. Uh, Just remember, we all are full-time therapists or, um, in some of our cases, PTs and in school. So this whole podcasting thing, like this is not our world. Our world is working with people one-on-one. So this is what we love to do every day and we love to get to talk about it. So let's start with the subjective because this is what was inspired by one of our followers. And the subjective is going to be, what is your favorite easy day or uh, training shoe? So the shoe that you use for over 80% of your runs, and what do you look for in a shoe that you're going to be putting all your miles on? What kind of characteristics do you personally like? The reason that he brought this up was, we I think it was on our 100th podcast episode where we talked about super shoes, and he said, we spent a lot of time talking about super shoes, and he wasn't like bashing it, but he was just recognizing this reality that we spent a lot of time talking about them because they're super fun, but in reality, we should be spending over 80% of the time in shoes that are suited for slower runs and for easy runs and keeping things simple. So why why don't we give that a little bit more time and discussion? And we thought that was a really awesome point. So we're going to dive into that today. So each of us are going to give our specific philosophies of what we look for or what we recommend to people when they pick an easy day shoe, because you should be doing most of your running at a very easy pace. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then we'll move on from there. So let's start with you, DJ. What would you say are the characteristics that you look for for an easy day shoe for yourself and for other people? Yeah, I think I take a look at three things mainly. So I look at one, it's an easy day. Does it work well with my stride? Is it something that feels natural to me? Is it something that I can picture myself logging a lot of miles in first? Two, I take a look at the distance of my run, because depending on the length of the run, there are certain shoes that may not accommodate for longer distances for me that I might want something else on my feet. And three, I take a look at terrain as well, because a lot of the runs I run have variability in the terrain that I'm running on, especially on easy days. Um, So some shoes that have worked well for me, I like the Evo Ride 3 a lot. It's a shoe that works well with my gait pattern and my mechanics, and it's a shoe that I can really flow with. However, the traction on that shoe isn't super great when I go into some trail situations. So a shoe like the Puma Velocity Nitro Tube is a shoe that has also worked well for me when I take it into off-roading conditions, and it can do a little bit of both for me. And then another one is like the Hoka Clifton 8. That's a shoe that works really well for me when I have long time on feet, when I'm doing upwards of 20 plus miles of easy long run type mileage. 
And then the Mach 5 kind of is a versatile shoe that I can also do a little bit of all of that in, but I don't do all of my daily runs in that. Yeah. Cool. Matt, what do you, does, does some of that resonate with you? Are there other things that you think about? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with David on knowing terrain as well as like distance of the run. So that'll kind of dictate things. Comfort is always also a really big factor. So on an easy day, I'm not worrying about how heavy the shoe is usually, although there's some of them that are clunkers that make it really hard to get that mileage. You don't want it too heavy, but you also don't need it to be too light. It's just something where comfort's really going to be key. So for me also, I'm probably going to look at stability as well as somebody who needs a little bit more of that. That's why... I typically do well like with something like the Tempest, which was designed for that purpose where I can pick the pace up of this, but works a little bit better as a training shoe for me. I, it's it's a little bit more inherently stable. I'm actually, believe it or not, having some trouble with more of our higher level stability shoes right now, which is a totally different conversation. But yeah, I'm going to look for something that's a little bit more stable, can be comfortable. I can do whatever I need to stride-wise. I'm not worried about having perfect mechanics. I want to be able to slam into the ground and have the shoe deal with whatever I throw at it. So um nova blast has been doing really really well for that um some of the changes they made and this is a different thing but have made it this is a version three so nova blast three um has been really good because it's very soft and i want a little more cushioning on those easy days when my legs are beat up so it's been really nice for easy miles another shoe that's surprising that might not work for everyone but the fuel cell rc train or sc trainer sorry from new balance has been another really good one where i just you know it's a little heavier it can handle a good amount of miles it handles me pounding on it and it doesn't make me feel as sore as like it kind of makes me ignore slightly that i'm as beat up but those are a couple options right now and that's actually was i was a really good question that there is some bit that the fact that we've just got a ton of super shoes so we were talking about those and now we're just starting to get a lot more trainers so we'll we'll hopefully be able to address that that's totally right to be honest totally i i I think we should just highlight the fact that you are enjoying the Nova Blast 3 because you just haven't been able to even run in the first two versions from a you'd get irritability right in the first two versions yeah it was i i got miles so i don't didn't run i tried the first one on and didn't review it and then the second one was sent to me and it gave me achilles issues almost immediately because it was so unstable and soft and that is not happening here so some big changes happened in version three that's great yeah i think there are some things that i i I think i resonate with with you uh but i think in a little bit of the vein that matt said i think that these types of shoes and these types of runs given that it's the huge volume of our running it's most of it this is where i think the ideas of shoe rotations and the ideas of the comfort filter really come into play because you can bust out a 5k in a shoe that's not the most comfortable but you feel the most fast in and it it might not be the thing that causes you problems from an injury standpoint i think that choosing a shoe should be the one that helps you on your journey to running healthy uh, for your easy daily miles. So shoe rotation is just a reminder, if you're running in your main shoe less than 59% of the time, um, that can have that right now, Dr. Malzo, uh, and it's just one study, but it showed a 39% risk reduction of injury by just rotating shoes. So I think finding two shoes that uh, you can rotate for these easy runs would be awesome. And pairing that with that comfort filter, so finding a shoe that is comfortable, that doesn't feel like it's jarring you one way or another, fits your foot well, has the amount of cushioning that you appreciate. For me, these easy mile shoes could be so varied between people. Like for some people, it might be something like, you know, higher stack, like the Cloud Monster, or it might be lower stack and odd, like the Newton Fate. So, you know, something like with lugs, which 
I don't know why, but I always appreciate this shoe for some reason. And the colors are dope in the new Fate 8. So uh, I, I just don't think that there's necessarily a formula for an easy day shoe. But I think if you can, barring any sort of injury or specific disability, if you can find a shoe that allows your foot to do more natural things and allows the foot to be stronger and allows your stride to be as natural as possible, I think that's a great opportunity to do that is with you the the big bulk of your mileage. I don't think it's a time that you need to find a shoe that pairs with your racing shoe to get that kind of similarity between the racing environment and your training environment. Save that pairing to get some similar stimuli for your workouts or even for your long runs if you're doing marathoning. For example, like for me in long runs last year in my marathon block, I liked the Boston 10 a lot which goes against what I kind of just said, where something a little bit more natural and flexible, not so rocker and all that kind of stuff. But that's a little bit different of a purpose because it's a purposeful long run and you're trying to get used to being on your feet with a rockered sole and that kind of thing and preparing your hips for all that kind of motion. So again, for me, I think maximize your shoe rotation in this scenario and find a shoe that's the most comfortable and allows your body to just naturally move, including your feet. So uh, stiffer rockers, like I... I know you mentioned the SC trainer, Matt, but like this is for me, this is not a shoe I would go to for easy runs because I just want to get a little bit more movement through my foot and a little bit more work through my foot and everything. But um, it is nice to log miles on when you're fatigued. There's shoes are tools, but I feel like if you had to just choose, my opinion would be to lean towards something that's a little bit more flexible and less maximally stacked. So I just thought it was a fascinating a, a great point by our follower to dive into this. So Matt, what else you got? I think that that's why I've enjoyed the tempo so much. Cause it's not plated. It's still got combination super for the power on PB plus power on. So it's kind of got the best of both roles plus some guidance and it's not the stiffest shoe. That's probably why I keep coming back to it. Cause I can trust it to go. I'm just looking for something comfortable that helps guide me a little bit, but I totally agree with you. And that's, we get the question all the time about, Oh, should I train in super shoes? And the answer is, Probably not. We don't know how exactly those affect you long term, but Nathan hit that on the head where, you know, a shoe rotation is a better idea rather than just running in one thing all the time. And please remember, a lot of those plated super shoes were designed for running faster. They weren't designed for running slower and easy. And so we don't know what's going to happen. You're you're not using the tool for its intended purpose. And that may or may not cause you issues. We wouldn't suggest that. So yeah, having a shoe that, you know, helps protect you a little bit, but helps kind of let your foot do what it needs to do, I think is a really great example, a really great uh, guide, guideline for going, yeah, that's kind of what more of an easy day shoe should be. Yeah. For me, just to shout out a couple shoes for myself, I don't think I gave some of my favorites, but for me, it's always easy to reach for a Mizuno Wave Rider. I've used that shoe since... 2017 has been like one of my my main shoes that I get a lot of mileage in. And then another one that I've been enjoying is um, the Topo Magnafly, which is actually a zero drop shoe. So I don't do longer runs in that shoe, but I, I so you have a 12 millimeter drop in the Wave Rider and then a zero millimeter drop uh, in the Magnify Magnafly. And I think I like, I like that variability and they just, they feel natural for me, even though they're pretty different, pretty different shoes. But I, I really like those two for just getting easy miles. Don't have to think about it. It doesn't feel like it's pushing me forward. It allows me to just settle in and be, be simple. Yeah. And I just wanted to add to one more thing to add to like my little categories. It'd be real quick how I'm feeling that day, because we've kind of alluded to it mm-hmm, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And like when my legs are thrashed, some of those options that I've mentioned earlier, I'm not going to reach for. 
And so you brought up the OnCloud Monster. Yes. That's one of the shoes that works well for me when my legs are just torn up and I just want to put something and I just want to roll. The speedboard still has a little bit of flexibility, but it still kind of does a little bit for me. Um, another great option, Mizuno Wave Horizon, when I need a little bit of stability as well. So just a quick little tidbit there. I, th- I think that's underrated, thinking about how do I feel today? You know, because you might yeah, always like the Horizon when you put it on or whatever your shoe is. And then you put it on that day and you're just like, this doesn't feel soft enough or it doesn't feel firm enough or it feels too rigid. Listen to that. If you have, I mean, that's assuming you have the ability to have, I mean, look at the shoe walls behind these two guys. That's not, <laughs> that's not normal. Like normally we people have lucky. one shoe, but I think, I think that's where if you can get a shoe rotation with two relatively different shoes that can give you a different experience, that's where you can take advantage because then you can match your body's needs based on its fatigue level, how you slept that night, whatever it is. Uh, maybe you're tight from a workout feeling. I'd say tight. I should put that in quotations. Feeling tight or sore from a workout from some other thing. Listen to your body. It's a great point, DJ. Anything else before we move on? Yeah, I think that the, the paying attention to comfort, I think, is really, really important. Cool. Awesome. Well, before we go into talking about patellar tendon stuff, we are super thankful for Running Warehouse. They've been our main sponsor for this podcast throughout this year, and they've been supporting what we're doing so that we can keep spending time making this content and discussing things that hopefully are helpful to all of you. Uh, So runningwarehouse.com, you can check out their website. They pretty much have all of the shoes that you could think about that are on the market, and they have a great selection and great return policy. They uh, recently have sent us some of their Vori apparel, which is super comfortable. I wear the fleet pant like almost every day at work and it allows me, especially as it's going to move into the fall, it's kind of that really, they just do athleisure stuff really well and it performs really well for running. And I also have the core short, which is my favorite lined short of any of the like lined shorts that I've worn. Usually I find them too restrictive and too warm. Uh, I find this one to be super comfortable and I use it for going out and hanging out uh, quite often. Any other pieces that you guys have really appreciated? Well, I'm not wearing one right now, but the Stratotech T is is really nice. Simple Uh-oh. design, breathes really well, color, little pocket, aesthetically pleasing. It's a shoe that I can, not a shoe, I'm so used to saying shoe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a piece of apparel that I can pretty much wear anywhere. I, I've run 10 mile yes. runs in that shoe and I've also worn it to eat tacos. So <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Good. Um, so if you're interested in checking out more of their inventory, you can go to runningwarehouse.com. They recently updated their website too, which has been, I think it's, it's nice. It's a nice update for like purchasing a better experience. So anywho, let's move on to the topic we're really excited to dive into and that's patellar tendinopathy. Again, we're going to do anatomy review. We're going to talk about risk factors and things that may lead to this. We're going to talk about the rehab process and pitfalls and just talk about how maybe we can prevent this from coming in the first place if we get to that point. But Matt, do you mind starting us off with a bit of anatomy review and kind of what's the the purpose of the patellar tendon and how does it work? Yeah, that's a that's a great starting place. So patellar tendon, right? So you have your kneecap, which most people are going to know of. So please remember that this is only part of the knee. There's there's multiple joints in this area. So you have the femur that comes down from the top. You have the tibia that comes from the bottom. And then you have this small floating bulb called your patella. So to make sure that is stabilized appropriately, your quad muscles up top. So those are the muscles. The tissue that's going to connect muscle to bone is called the tendon. So the tendon is going to connect. That's the patellar tendon up top that continues into the ligament 
uh, sorry, it continues into the bone. Then technically the part on the bottom that connects the patella to the tibia is a ligament. So it's patella ligament is below, patella tendon is above. Oftentimes those are used interchangeably in both the literature and as well as clinically. Uh, some people will argue that that bottom part is also a tendon, but by definition, anything that connects bone to bone is a ligament. So, you know, so that's, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but it really refers to a lot of those non-contractile tissues above and below the patella. And I think one of the reasons that it's kind of debated of what you should call it is the actual structure, which is connecting a bone to a bone versus the function, which it functions as a tendon because it's yes. really, can, it's a sesamoid bone. So sesamoid bones are like these floating bones uh, between tendons and muscles instead of, you know, a, a ligament like the ACL, if you contract something like your hamstring, it's not as directly affecting the, the tautness of that ligament. Whereas with, you know, with the patellar tendon, that's a very different story, patellar ligament, whatever. So what do you got, DJ? Yeah, I think one thing that's important to note from an anatomical perspective is when you take a look at the patella and the interrelationship between the quadricep muscle, tendon, and ultimately patellar ligament slash tendon, whoever you're talking to, the patella actually acts as essentially extending the moment arm and creating a lever that you can have more torque off of that region, meaning force from big muscles like your quads to essentially control and absorb load and push off and do things that you need to do. So um, it does have a very functional purpose in that. It's not just a floating little bone. It does extend the moment arm and does quite a bit. And there's a reason for subluxations, yep, dislocations, things like that. And that's a big point because one of the, the main functions of the patellar tendon, in the same way this is also true for the Achilles tendon and a lot of tendons, is is not just transfer of force, but also storage of energy. So for because we have a, an audience that loves shoes, you hear the conversation about energy storage in foam all the time, right? So the idea that the foam compresses, it has some level of compliance, and then energy return, quote unquote, and the energy return is how much of that foam goes back to its normal state. That's what tendons are meant to do as well. And that's our actual main way of propulsion is by using tendons, because when you load a tendon, let's say you're hopping on one foot, and think about your Achilles, because it's the easiest tendon to, to imagine. As you bounce on a single leg, your calf muscle stays the same length. What's happening is your tendon is getting longer and shorter. Your calf isn't going short, long, short, long in these rapid movements like we do with running. It's all your your tendon storing energy by getting longer and then the elasticity of it recoils and you get that propulsion from the tendons. And so you're not just moving a limb by a tendon, but you're actually storing energy into that tendon and releasing it through the energy in the uh, elastin that's within these tendons. So part of the function of the patellar tendon is that energy storage and release, which is part of why something like running predisposes it to injury. Because if we were just squatting all the time or straightening a leg out, that's pretty different than jumping or single leg hopping like we're doing in running. Anything else on function? Yeah, that's the the running versus squatting is going to be a very different type of load. So, it, you know, the running is going to be more of that plyometric, that elastic um, load in there where it's just having to stretch and then come back really quick, almost like a rubber band or a string. The weightlifting, unless you're talking about, Olympic lifts. you know, uh, Olympic lifts and some of the power training, um, typically are going to be a lot slower load, but it's a lot higher, right? So, or well... 
that might be argued, but it's just a different type. So running tends to utilize the tendons a little bit more elastically, which is a different type of stress. Totally. So when we're starting to think about patellar tendinopathy, we're going to use tendinopathy as a phrase that's kind of hopefully becoming popularized versus tendinitis. Um, so we're going to we're going to talk about that. Matt, what do you got before I go further? I think the really big thing I want to call out here, just because this is part of what my dissertation is on, is looking at tendons, especially the Achilles. The patella tendon is no different where a lot of people will assume, oh, I have tendinitis, right? Which is the acute version, meaning this just happened, right? This is within a couple days, okay? But as soon as you get past that period, things change. Most people, from what we're seeing from tendon uh, research, usually when a runner especially has like symptomatic tendon, it's not usually an itis. The itis probably happened a while ago and you may not have even noticed. It's probably an osis, right? Or opathy, right? It's been there for a while. So this was what, what we call an acute on chronic irritation. So oftentimes people will do things like taking meds and certain stuff like, why is it not affecting it? It's because it's not an itis. And so the most common thing you're going to see, especially these opathies where this has been going on for a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. And just a one more thing on the itis front, what creates, what makes an itis an itis is true inflammatory markers within the area. So um, it's what your blood is sending or what your bloodstream is sending to that area to help heal something that's acutely damaged. And if those are not present, you don't have inflammation, which means you don't have an itis. And most of the time, these tendon issues are not itis, which means that anti-inflammatories will not work. And we'll talk about some other some other things. Anti-inflammatories will not work for anti-inflammation. At the same time, like something like ibuprofen is also an antipyretic and also an analgesic. So to have something that an analgesic meaning it's taking away pain. So it might feel better, but it's not because it's taking away inflammation. Just kind of throwing that out there. For people who are uh, suffering from quote unquote, or having issues with their patellar tendon, patellar tendinopathy. A lot of times, um, you feel it just below inferior, but not below deep, but below down from the patella that we call the inferior pole. Um, it's that, that bony part right at the bottom of your kneecap. That's where most of the time that pain is going to be present. It's usually not further down towards the tibia. It's up towards that bone. And it usually worsens with loading of the tendon. Um, and that that's kind of where people feel it. But what do you guys say from a diagnosis standpoint? How do we go about diagnosing this is the condition? What are some potential other differential diagnoses that people might need to look out for before just trying to dive in and treat this? I think anytime you take a look at elastic tissue in general, if it's a tendinopathy, a lot of times it's going to hurt when you start. It'll get better as you warm up, and then it'll hurt a lot again after you finish. That's, that tends to be the uh, the normal trajectory of, of pain as far yeah. as that goes. And the reason why is because tendons are elastic. That's, that's the, once they warm up and they're moving it, and, and you have other things going, like natural analgesics, you know, endogenous opiates, things like that, like you're moving, you're focused, you're doing other things, you know, you're not really focused on that per se. And, and the movement is more fluid and the joints move in a lot more. Once you stop that, it all kind of comes crashing back. And so, um, 
that's probably the natural cycle. One of the first like tells when someone's giving you that information and feedback that you could be like, okay, this sounds kind of like a tendinopathy. That or when you take a look at a plyometric activity. So anytime you look at a plyometric activity, you have an eccentric phase, meaning a muscle is lengthening and you're landing and absorbing the load that you are putting down. An amortization phase, which is like right in between that and essentially the push off that plyometric phase, the concentric phase on the other end of that when you are actively moving off of said lever arm. So normally it's going to be upon landing. If you're talking like a a triple jumper, they're having a hard time actually absorbing that load and then jumping. You know, it's not the actual act of I can't push off. It's well, they can't push off, but it's like I can't actually accept my load and then push off. So like downhills, things like that. Yeah. The single leg hop test is a really good way to assess this. And usually you'll see them like, yeah, it's not always painful, but you'll just notice a huge difference in their ability to deal with like how quickly they can pop off that leg, especially at the knee joint. So yeah, David's totally on that with, and doesn't necessarily mean they have to have pain. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but it's often a tell. And what other, what other things can sometimes be mistaken for patellar tendinopathy? Matt, what do you got for the differential side of things? There's a lot of stuff that can show up in the area. Please remember that this this there's a lot of this is what we call a high density real estate area. There's so much in this area. There's a lot of stuff that we can refer to this area. So when I see somebody with any kind of anterior knee pain, I the way I'm trained, the first thing I'm going to do is assess and make sure the spine is not referring anything in that area because you can get some spine referrals that occasionally go to that area. The other thing that I'm going to be thinking about is any one of the other like ligaments or that because there's a lot of it's not just the patellar tendon, patellar ligament, there's a lot of other tissue that's surrounding the kneecap. So I'm thinking any other either articular or fascial irritation. And then I'm also thinking bursa. The infrapatella bursa, which is these fluid-filled sacs that help reduce friction, those get irritated all the time, but they will present very differently. So as David mentioned, tendons typically they suck when you're warming up when you're warming up and then all of a sudden it feels better and then it goes back to really not feeling good as soon as you stop so that's a pretty clear sign but if somebody has something where it's like it just you know is the kind of the opposite where it feels a little better at first and it gets worse 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 worse, then i'm starting to think is something else going on is it a bursal irritation sometimes you'll see more swelling with the bursal irritations as well um, but it's just, again, you gotta, you gotta take a lot of factors into account, not just how they perform, but listening to their history and going, how does this actually react and when they get their, get their symptoms. But those are a couple of things that I'm kind of thinking of and looking for. And now when we, when we kind of move towards the next phase of this, so when you start to think about, um, risk factors as well, so you have some presentations, how, what are the symptoms of this? How does it usually feel? But then right. like, what are some things that you look at for people that, might put them at risk for that or common trends that you y'all have seen clinically or that we're seeing in the research that predispose people to this. Cause what I love about predictive factors is I feel like those are the things to attack from a prevention standpoint Though we can't necessarily prove prevention. That would be a logical way to step forward. So what, what have been some of the things that you've seen or that you've read? I mean, I can't prevent this, but previous injury tends to be (laughs) (laughs) it's the biggest predictive factor for almost every injury is if you've had a history of it you have a higher risk factor of having a higher risk of having again yeah any other ones david or is that that's what you got no that's not my only contribution but (laughs) (laughs) with that said i think just general instability and proprioceptive issues 
in general. So uh, for the listeners, proprioceptive, proprioception is basically your joint's awareness of where it is in space. All of your joints have these little sensors around them that, let's say I close my eyes, I put my hand out away from me, and I'm moving it around. I know I have a general awareness of where my hand is, regardless of the fact I can't see it and I'm doing other things. Like, so let's say I'm doing multitasks, such as running. I have my hands moving, I have my shoulders moving, I'm gazing, I'm looking around at different things, and my feet, my ankles, my knees, my hips, they're all doing different things at the same time to contribute to a single motion that I'm doing. With that, my body has to know where my knee is. And usually when you have sprains or you have injuries or you don't really work on those types of awareness or communication type activities where you're having your hip, your knee, your foot and ankle talk to each other, um, and your spine, I can't leave that out as well. Um, if they're not talking to each other, then there's a broken link. And then that's going to cause excessive motion or activation or all kinds of different sub- like sequelae of things that can contribute to injuries further. So it's not always like static strength. It's not like, oh, I can squat 300 pounds. I'm good. It's not as simple as that. It's making sure that you, all of your muscles, your joints, everything can talk to each other and work together in a way that works for your mechanics. Yeah. And I think just, I, I think a perfect segue off of that is, I think one of those risk factors that I identified is chosen movement patterns by people. Um, I like to say, and I learned this from Dr. Chris Powers, uh, who's out at the Movement Performance Institute in Los Angeles. He, he, he likes to say that weakness doesn't hurt people. The movement patterns that come as a result of weakness or con- or neuromuscular control are what what hurt people. So that would mean like the way you actually move is what ends up bothering things versus the weakness that you have. The weakness leads to that movement movement pattern, but the weakness itself doesn't actually hurt you. So a couple things when you think about when I think about that, people who run with certain movement patterns, I think are predisposed. And this has been seen in jumpers, um, for different sports like basketball, people who tend to jump with a knee forward posture and an upright trunk, um, that places higher load on the patellar tendon than someone who moves into a little bit more hip flexion, um, as they're jumping. And so you can call that like a glute dominant or a quad dominant jumping pattern. Uh, you can also see that in running people, some people run with a very far forward knee, um, and a very upright trunk. And some have a nice, just a little bit of a forward trunk lean and their knee stays kind of nicely over their foot as they're going through their cycle. Why that happens can be for a number of things. I think one of them that's more common is calf weakness. So when you have calf weakness, the, the soleus, the kind of that meaty, deeper, bigger calf muscle that controls forward progression of your tibia. And if you're weak there, that means your knee's going to fall forward. And that's going to put a lot of that extra tension and fast loading through the patellar tendon. So calf weakness is one of those things that can lead to that kind of quad dominant pattern, because that means you have to use your quad more because your calf is not contributing. Um, So I think that's, you know, there's more, but I think biomechanically, when you see somebody who's running with a more forward knee posture, upper, upper trunk, and you're not getting a combination of, of hip hip flexion with that knee flexion and that your their calf's not contributing, I think that's one of those areas that really can contribute to developing this. I think another one on that note is especially that can contribute to that movement pattern is also hip extensor weakness, which is also, you know, got to mention that if we're talking about Chris Powers. 
um, just because you know Nathan mentioned from the from the bottom up where the calf is is not able to control the tibia coming forward really quickly, and just the way the hip extensors need to be able to control the femur and drive that behind you, where if you don't have that control, the knee's going to get driven a lot more forwards, so that can be problematic. So yeah, that's not, another one. Yeah, if you're if you're landing. Uh, you see this with people who overstride as well because if yeah. you're landing really far forward your foot's way out in front right. of you um then what's going to have to happen is your knee has to go through a ton of range of motion and your hip is going to have this delayed hip extension which is going to mean your knee's going to be hanging out way in front of you and so if you're not activating that hip extension early then you're gonna have problems and right. overstriding is actually like a swing phase mechanic issue so it's not <laughs> you know overstriding is not about where you place your foot it's about what's happening as your foot's coming forward and you may have to make sure that those hip extensors are doing their job to get the foot in the right spot so totally 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 any other things that you think predispose people we can't forget the quads no we i mean can't. let's based, talk about it on the based on the literature i know you made the, the comment like oh it's not necessarily weakness but based on the literature quad weakness is still a major risk factor for patellar tendinopathy for sure now whether that happened because they've been having inhibition and pain for a while yes. which is really common with tendon issues that's where it gets fuzzy and that's where it's really hard sometimes to figure out but you cannot have a weak quad if you don't, I mean, because that's that's the most direct structure to mm-hmm. the patellar tendon. I agree completely. Flesh out that idea, flesh that idea out a little bit more on um, inhibition and tendinopathy. It, not even in the presence yeah. of pain. Talk about that a little more. Yeah, this is really this is a really hard thing, especially clinically, to go. What where is this coming from? Was it because they had quad weakness before, or is it because they had pain? So. Typically, when you have pain, your body will inhibit muscles from firing around that area because it's trying to protect it. Okay, so whereas if you fire everything maximally over it, the body's worried, oh, I'm going to cause symptoms here. Ironically, you don't even have to have pain with some tendon issues to have that inhibition. So that exact process just gets a little more fuzzy than that. It's actually very, very common for individuals with whether it's Achilles tendinopathy, patellar tendinopathy, any of the tendinopathies to have weakness. We just don't know because a lot of those longitudinal studies have, that have not been done yet to figure out which, like, was it chicken or the egg, really, what comes down to. Um, that is definitely something that needs to be addressed, but that's where things get a little bit weird. And it's probably because there's a lot of nerve innervation in tendons because how much that thing is being stretched or not stretched tells the body a lot. There's a lot of proprioceptors in that area, as David kind of mentioned earlier, because your body wants to know what's happening here. Sometimes if that gets too stretched or some of those things get too stimulated, the body will actually totally inhibit that muscle and go, no, this we're going to break this. So that does happen. But again, this is where it gets a little fuzzy, and that's why you cannot forget about your nervous system because that has a large influence on that as well. Yeah, you you just can't forget to work that quad. We'll talk about that yeah. in the rehab section. But yeah, and I, I Matt alluded to this earlier a little bit too. But when we take a look at glute ex, or not glute, but hip extension, there's also hip external rotation, and so being able to control rotational torque as you land, gravity pulls you down and in. And I'm sure everyone has seen someone run with those hips and femurs just collapsing down inward, knee collapsing in, feet flaring out. And granted, there's some natural biomechanics and maybe someone's a little bit more predisposed to move in that way. But if you can't control your own torque that you're putting down into the ground, that's a problem. And so if you're rotating from the top down or or bottom up, if you're pronating and you can't control the landing at the ankle, 
this creates a big rotation like this on your entire lower extremity. And that puts a lot of shearing on the knee as well. Whether that's the joint from an arthritic standpoint down the line, or if that's a meniscal irritation or a patellar ligament issue, that is just a giant red flag. A lot of times I say the knee is a middleman. It just does whatever the hip and ankle tell it to, at least in dynamic standpoints. And so (laughs) it's one of those things where if you can't control your own body, you're not doing yourself any favors. So the big driver of that up top is the glute max. As you land, it's not only a hip extender, but an external rotator. And that's the big, powerful muscle on the backside of your bum that really works. It's not just powerful in the fact that it can push you. It does a big job in stabilizing as well when you're landing. So soapbox done. (laughs) That's fantastic. Let's move on to talking about rehab. So a lot of times what's going on that predisposes you to this helps drive the rehabilitation process as well as kind of the structure and uh, the physiology that's going on inside of the structure that you are rehabilitating. So uh, Matt, why don't you start? What are some some of the uh, the major concepts uh, that you think about when it comes to rehabilitating the patellar tendon? So it is really important to know what stage of healing you're in. So if if this is, again, tendinopathies usually are a little bit more chronic, but you can get an acute on chronic irritation of them. So if they're in that early phase, doing lots of stuff can actually be irritating. So knowing kind of when to push and when not is incredibly important. And oftentimes working with a medical professional is really important for that because that can be complicated. So you might need somebody to help tease out where you are. As who, soon who do you mean as by things, medical yeah. professional, who do you mean by medical professional? So uh, usually, I mean, most commonly a physical therapist would be really helpful, right? Somebody who's going to be helping you along this rehab journey, obviously. Um, but whomever you might, you know, it's somebody, it needs to be someone that is, should be working with people that are in, that are having pain. There are certain people that are not licensed to do that. So make sure you're working with the right person. So, um, was that good? Yeah, I was just curious if you meant, yeah. oh, you need, uh, yeah, because yeah, I think some people will probably be asking the questions like, oh, do I need specific imaging to find out what's going on with my tendon? Oh, like, do I need, yeah. do I need that's, to get an ultrasound image to see I'm in this stage of healing or uh, not? That was my, yeah. I guess that's what I was no, getting to. Yeah, that's, yeah, so I can tell you oftentimes imaging is not really necessary and people will freak out about, I need it, I need a, an MRI or I need this. And to be honest with you, like sometimes like just the pressure tests and stuff like that and stuff like that. And then also knowing how your symptoms are responding throughout the day are actually way more accurate and will tell you a lot more than the image because what people forget is degeneration is actually completely normal and not associated with pain or function. So that's why we encourage people. I know you, everybody wants to have imaging, but oftentimes it can actually cause more problems. We've, there's been research done that there, that People have gotten MRIs. It's not say MRIs are not are bad. They're great. They're really important. But how often they're really necessary? They're often overutilized. So often you're not going to need it. Figuring out how your symptoms are relating, right? So if you are able to go for a run or walk and things maybe flare up and then they start to calm down very, very quickly, it's like, okay, so you're kind of out of that acute phase. But if you are trying to run or load it and it just gets irritated and doesn't calm down, that's that's too much. And that's actually a really good guide, right, to going how much activities can this handle. If it calms down, it's in a tolerable level and it doesn't flare up really quickly afterwards. That's how the symptoms present are actually a much better way of looking at what stage of healing you're in as opposed to the MRI or things like that, because oftentimes those will show you other things. Now, if you have a total rupture and the thing's hanging on by a thread, you know, 
there's that might be a little different but which is super knowing weird. how things yeah knowing how things are presenting is kind of the key about knowing that and then so if things are if things are super irritated right maybe loading it and running isn't necessarily the best thing some gentle range of motion kind of stuff making sure you don't nothing gets stiff the joint doesn't get stiff isometrics can be really really good so what that is is where you do a contraction but you don't move so it's like if i you know i'm carrying a heavy weight but i don't move it i'm just carrying it right and my biceps is just contracting but not moving there's not as much load to the tendon you can load the muscle right but there's less stress on the tendon at least less stress in a way that 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 causes that elastic load which is often too much so isometrics can be really, really good early on to still go get a little bit of load, make sure the muscle doesn't get any weaker, but still slowly start loading that stuff. When things have calmed down, you can do more concentric stuff where you're shortening the muscle. Again, not using that elastic part yet, but it's kind of shortening and getting used to that. Second part is dealing with a little bit more of that lengthening under tension called eccentric load. Okay, that's where you, that's the most stress you can put on it. Well, not the most a high-speed eccentric load is the most stress, right? But eccentric is starting to get up there. So that's where we talk about, like, if you're doing a squat, maybe you do two legs and you're focusing on slowly lowering down and coming back up, slowly lowering down. Once you've gotten past that, you've got to be really careful with this. Then the plyometrics come because that's that fast eccentric load. That's the highest load. It's the biggest bang for your buck, but you got to make sure things are ready because if not, you're going to – you could send yourself back to stage one. Not to freak you out, but – those can be a little irritable. Yeah, and I think there's always a risk of injury with any of it, so I think that's fair. Anything else on your end, David, when you think about rehab for patellar tendon? No, I think I think Klein hit it pretty well. I think it's just um, to not forget the whole body as well. So we take a look at... Yeah. I think you did a great job of highlighting all of the different sequences and kind of staging it and going through it, um, yeah. but making things talk to each other as well specific to the patellar yeah, tendon. Yeah, specific to the yeah. patellar tendon. So Yeah, not the other stuff. Um, I yeah. kind of alluded to it earlier, but everything works together. So just making sure your hip stabilizers are doing good, your knee stabilizers, your ankle stabilizers, and then building the strength in the right areas and then eventually working your way back to plyometric activities, which in some aspects is a skill in and of itself, just having the neuromuscular ability to perform said skill. Um but no, I think that's good. I think the progression is pretty natural there, the way you laid it out. I, w- I would really emphasize again, but what David and Nathan have both emphasized this, but at, if you have an injury, take that as a time to really optimize everything else because we always have some biomechanical issues. Nobody's perfect. It's actually, if you have an injury, it's the perfect time to go, hey, is there anything else going on that I can really work on, right? It's a little wake-up call. That's what the positive thing about this going, what can I learn from this? What can I really get out of this experience to help me move forward? So don't look at it as negative. They, they could go, hey, wake up. You got to take a little more care of this. I eat your body. Yep. I think the key is you guys hit it both. And just to kind of sum it up, one, the key with any sort of tendon injury is load management and load progression. So you have to figure out what kind of loads you can tolerate and build the tolerance of it. Tendons do not heal if they get rest. They, they need the right amount of activity. And so that might mean backing down from what you're doing, but it's not complete rest that will not heal your tendon. Um, you have to be loading the tendon for it to physiologically respond to that. Uh, and then I think adding on to that is what David said. You have to get your whole body to work together. And that's where you can be training some of your, your hip, your ankle, and then your biomechanics on top of that. And that's the hard part. Getting yourself to move differently is really, really tough. And so um, that's where it is sometimes nice to be working with 
you know, a running PT who can help you identify what are some of those weaknesses from your trunk all the way down to your ankles and how are those working together and what are some running cues you could think of if you're somebody who has biomechanics that are potentially predisposing you to this. So you got to load it though. If you don't load it, not going to, and you got to sequentially go up and you got to be patient. I think some of the big, the biggest thing that I see for people with patellar tendon or Achilles tendon issues is that they aren't patient enough and they're not dedicated to the program long enough. So I, that when, when it comes to imaging tendons, one of the best ones right now is doing ultrasound imaging where they can look at collagen uh, fibers and the orientations and in Achilles tendons, because it's easier to image, they, they found that it takes nine months for that thing to actually restructure. If you have a tendinopathy, which is most of us, if we're having patellar tendon issues, it's a tendinopathy, nine months it will take for that thing to restructure, which means you have to be dedicated to your tendon loading program for nine months. Your pain won't be there, but you're going to have to keep doing the program. And so that's, I think that's one of the biggest problems is people get out of the woods, quote unquote, by having no pain. And then they give up on their tendon loading program. And I see them again in the clinic. Um, so I think, I think that is my biggest thing is have the right expectations for the dedication you're going to have to get into and that you might have little pop-ups of pain, but that doesn't mean that it's getting worse. It means that it's just still healing. So you just have to respect it and know that physiology takes nine months, at least for those things to heal. Um, so what you got, David? I just got to give a quick shout out. Um, if my man Ken out there is listening, Ken Zapernick taught over at Western University, the alma mater of myself in Klein, also known as Dr. Z. He like hammered it into us to load the yep. tissue, find the target, the tissue and load it. <laughs> That's why I want to like encourage what, what Nathan said that you really got to stick on this stuff. And because it's, this might be why there's some research recently on Achilles tendinopathy is that 50% of male runners have at least one Achilles tendon that has tendinopathy, whether or not they have pain. I think that it, so, you know, you, you all have it. You might as well work yeah. on it. And just because your you pain have reduces doesn't mean it's necessarily gone. So if you know you've had a flare up, you really do need to work on this for a long time and make it part of your routine, right? There's You don't need to do a thousand exercises for this. And the same thing, it's not silly exercise, but you can actually use your running in different ways, right? So they're the same thing with load, right? So uphills can sometimes be a little bit easier on the tendon, right? Because it tends to be a little bit more hip dominant. Downhills where a lot of people will also have symptoms in the tendon because that's that, that high eccentric load. You might need to think about either doing some eccentrics, you know, to continue on just as like, you know, a couple times a week just to keep loading this. You might also think about being strategic with maybe some appropriate downhill running, whatever works for you. But you just got to keep once even once your pain resolves, you need to think about that long term approach unless you want to flare up. Because, again, that might be why one of the biggest risk factors is a prior history. Yeah. And you talked about, Matt, you just you just mentioned a maintenance program of some kind of eccentrics. Um, right now, the literature on eccentrics only um, isn't super strong. Uh, it's it's not the strongest for saying this is going to work. Uh, what's actually been shown to be better in terms of like satisfaction is high, slow resistance training. So hot, like really high load, slow movement. Yeah. So just like really, yeah. I, that's where maybe twice a week, this is, I should be preaching this to myself because I hate, I honestly, you guys, I hate lifting. Uh, but it doesn't always have to you know, be twice like a week. A I, have a great ex- I have a great exercise for this. Not, yeah. not, it doesn't have to be max load, but there is something to be said about getting your body to have 
high loads um, has been healthy for tendons as they're recovering. And so if you're able to work that into a, a routine, it, it could be something good. What's your exercise, Matt? And only takes twice a week. So I've had a history of Achilles tendinopathy. There's a reason why I have 200 pound kettlebells and 275s and 250s. So just twice a week, I'll lower rep, right? Because again, it's not everybody likes three sets of 10, right? That's that's doesn't always work. If you want high load, sometimes you got to get that lower rep range where you're really fatiguing that stuff out. So that's something, two things that I generally do. And my wife looks at me like I'm nuts and she's like, why are you doing that? So lower reps with a heavy weight of just either single leg calf raises or single leg squats. And it sucks every time, but my tendons have been doing pretty good. So yeah, I totally forgot about that. And that's actually a really big thing right now is that HSR, heavy, slow resistance training has done a lot better from a patient satisfaction um, uh, long-term outcome than eccentrics, even though everybody says eccentric, eccentric, some of just getting the, the thing freaking strong is also helpful. I got to give totally. a shout out to Adam Meekins. There's nothing, nothing wrong with getting strong. I will say too, it doesn't have to be a hundred pounds right off the bat. <laughs> client, no, client is no, don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> you also no, don't do that. I have worked. Yeah, I've worked up to this, starting from like twenty pounds. Then like, I did fifty, it can be body then seventy-five. Now, if you're starting from able. ground zero, that's yeah. okay. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, thank don't you. do, don't do that. I'm Sorry, not even sure bad. I can do a hundred pounds in both hands and single leg calf raise that's pretty gnarly i can't do it in both oh, okay. hands I was yet like a 200 pound i'm working calf up raise. to it that is why i have it oh my goodness yeah i'm up to like i can do about 120 yeah, right i now. give myself goal at least 100, 100 i haven't really tried but I, I i could see myself doing that i have to work on my grip strength because it's really yeah. hard to like grip the 200 pound kettlebells <laughs> in each arm like just holding it is Wait. like killing me so i haven't worked up to that far <laughs> when i ran collegiately i'd be doing deadlifts that's literally why like, i bought the those. most like limiting factor whether it was like a trap bar deadlift or a romanian deadlift or whatever it was grip strength it wasn't my legs it was like can i actually hold the darn thing <laughs> the, the reason i said that is is don't be afraid just once or twice a week to again within your tolerance work up to it but a little heavier lifting is actually really important and there's a whole conversation we can have not just for runners, but also especially aging runners. Awesome. I think uh, I got. we want to talk, touch on one more thing before we wrap up. And it's another pitfall that I think people fall into. And it's this idea of what kind of little things can I do that I don't have to actually do anything, but it's going to heal my tendon. This could be things like different types of like icing or ice baths or massage guns or soft tissue or... Uh, injections, cortisone injections, or, um, or the like. So I'm going to give my two cents on it and then I'll let, let y'all go there. I think that there's a place, uh, in recovery for some sort of soft tissue techniques. I think that that, you know, doesn't need to be invasive, but some sort of soft tissue that can help whatever, but that that's, I think it's got to be directed towards specific issues that are found by a PT when they're looking at them, um, that can, to really dial it in. I really don't think there's a big place or any, can I say any place for cortisone injections when it comes to patellar tendinopathy? One reason is because as we talked about, most people are not, uh, 
having an itis, which means that the cortisone is not necessarily needed. It wouldn't do anything to help the actual process. It would just mask symptoms for a while. Two, repeated cortisone injections decrease the quality of tissues, which means that they're just going to get worse and worse and worse. If I, I just I just don't think there's a place for them when it comes to tendon issues, um, both the Achilles and, and maybe there's very special cases, and I get that. But by and large, I, I don't think there's a place for them. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on that stuff? I'm on this, this similar page to Nathan where, you know, maybe acutely some stuff may may help calm some of this down. But long term, that stuff isn't going to do anything except potentially prolong your symptoms, if not make it worse. Because commonly people will go, hey, you know, I got this really quick fix and now it feels better for a second. And now I'm just going to go back to doing what I was doing, which is probably overtraining or loading it in an inappropriate way. And then you're just going to make it worse. So a lot of these things will are going to act as band-aids, but they're not going to actually treat the underlying issue or the not even underlying the actual tissue, which is a problem, especially for tennis stuff. Because like all three of us have mentioned, you have to load a tendon appropriately if you're going to get it to appropriately heal. If you don't and you just rest it or you just like try to get your symptoms out. Then it's going to be a problem. Now, yep. I mean, if, if you're using some of these tools as a way to decrease some of your symptoms so you can appropriately load it, maybe that's an exception. But for the most part, those things are going to be adjuncts that oftentimes aren't even necessary and are going to distract from the real work you need. Yeah, to do. that's what I was going to say. Perfect. Yeah, I was going to say in the short term, like I don't have a problem with soft tissue things. If something's taut and on guard and it's yeah. at an attachment point, yeah. like by all means, calm it down. Sure. And then yeah. if that calms you down so that you can work yeah. on things, perfect. And sometimes yeah. I have to have to talk to my patients. I'm like, you're doing well enough. Like, I think the biggest thing for you is to work on building this up. I don't think me working on your leg is a, is the yeah. most valuable use of our time right now. So sorry, it's not going to me. You know, it can help calm you down and maybe open like get you a little bit more desensitized about loading this stuff, but it's not going to make that nine months yeah, any faster. There's certainly a time and it place. It will make the nine months no. faster. It can just help you get there if you, if you use it right. It's got to be adjunct. So perfect. If you're, if you're still putting the work in. Yes. Yeah. So I had a group of high schoolers that I got to work with all summer who are the high school cross country team in the area here. And the rate we actually started working together, I know one of the guys pretty well and he reached out to me. He's like, Hey, I think we're all going to start doing these exercises this summer. He sent me a video. Um, he said, are these good exercises? And he sent me knee over toes guy, uh, a, a video of kind of his yeah. main like exercises. And we've gotten some questions about knee over toes guy. Um, if you haven't heard of them, you can kind of just tune out right now. It's not that important. Um, but do you have any, do you have any thoughts on, on his stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a time and place for all these types of things. I mean, some of the loads that he's putting on the tendons, he's obviously trained up to. He's taking those mm-hmm. joints through a full range of motion under load, under body weight or more, depending on some of the angles that he's doing things. I don't philosophically have a problem with doing that. I, but with that said, you have to train up to it. And so I strengthening a joint through its full range of motion, great strengthening the cartilage like all the supporting structures and cast amazing but i just want to make sure for our listeners and our for our viewers i wouldn't just jump straight into a lot of these things because the not just the muscular and tendinous demand but the neuromuscular demand of a lot of these things is very high and so you yeah. might find yourself in another situation where you end up getting injured by rushing into another thing a little too quickly so 
I, I need to do a little bit of a deeper dive on his more deeper philosophical reasonings, but from based on some of the exercises and things I've seen, a lot of them are closed kinetic chain. They're lengthening. They're going through a full range of motion on a lot of them. That I don't have a problem with. So I think it's more so what the person's ready for and staging it yep. appropriately. I agree. And I think, you know, something we didn't talk about that we probably should, for people who are having patellar tendon issues, two situations that are going to maximally load your tendon, which if you're more irritable or still in a recovery phase, you should be cautious of these two situations. One of them is squats below 90 degrees. So once you get below 90 degrees, the load on the tendon of the patellar tendon skyrockets. The second is open kinetic chain knee extension beyond 30 degrees of extension. So you got to really... Um, yeah, knee ex- like, like open knee kinetic training. That's what not, I mean by legs not on the ground. It's free floating and it's moving outside. Yeah, of your you're extending your knee. Yeah. Yes, thanks, David. Um, so th- once you get beyond 45 or 30 degrees to straight, that's where that tendon load is going to be extremely high. So those would be two scenarios to potentially avoid and gradually work into. Like if you're normally a deep squatter down to your heels, if you're suffering from some patellar tendon stuff back that down and come back up above 90 for a while and and work your way back into it. So load management is key. And I think, David, you just summarized knee over toes guys' thoughts. That's exactly what I was thinking too. Okay, we have two minutes to talk about shoes and patellar tendon. I would, I'm just going to put this out there from the get-go. I don't think that shoes are the main cause of patellar tendon issues. Not even close. Uh, but let's just, for the for the sake of it, what are some things that you might consider if you're recovering from? If you have it already, what shoes may you want to avoid? Any shoe that puts you in that knee forward position. I, I think I'm. I I hesitate to place it on a drop ratio. I think a lot of people like to say, oh, well, higher drop's going to unload the calves and put it more on your knees and hips. I don't think it works that way for everyone. It depends on how your foot and your hips and everything integrates with the ground underneath you. Um, With that said, it does put you in a little bit more of this position, so you probably are going to be translating forward a little bit more, but I think it's more the body mechanics of the individual. But really anything that kind of pitches that knee forward where you notice that irritation because it could be very easily where someone would be like, oh, we'll just put a rockered shoe on and that'll just, you'll roll through and the force will be taken off. Well, that could exponentially go up too. Inc- like, yeah. so I, I definitely kind of default to the, uh, to the comfort factor on that one a little bit, to be completely yeah. honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see some of these more instrumental background foundational type knowledges and instruments that we use to kind of say, well, this loads this and this loads that. It's just a little guideline. So if someone follows that and then they have more pain, don't do it. <laughs> so, I think for you just mentioned too, and in my head, if somebody is coming in and they're presenting with calf weakness and knee forward, that might make me think, okay, high drop shoe might not be best for you because the high drop shoe is going to put more forward pitch on your your foot, which might lead to some of that higher soleus demand. So that might be when a high drop shoe comes into play. Whereas somebody who has a lot of hip weakness, they and then they put on a rocker shoe and their hip can't control 
the increased hip load from a rocker, then that might put the load down at your knee. So I think it depends on what's else, what are those kind of extra factors that are leading to your knee thing that would make me say, Hey, maybe not a high drop shoe, maybe not a rocker shoe, or maybe yes to those, you know? Um, but that's kind of where my head goes is you'd have to pair. What are the actual impairments to the shoe characteristics? Matt, what do you got? I would definitely say, I mean, again, it's the same kind of thing. It's not always going to work best. So a fully rockered shoe is going to be, you have to be a little cautious with because there is literature that it will shift load from the ankle up to the knee and the hip. So that might not work for everyone. Anecdotally, a shoe that's got a beveled heel can work a little bit better because it eases that transition in as opposed to something that's got a really big posterior flare right? Something that's that soul's really coming back behind. That's going to be something that probably pitches you forwards. So be very cautious with shoes that have that posterior flare and that kind of stuff, because that's going to load a lot of those anterior structures a lot more, maybe potentially before they're ready. Um, and this is going to sound out. I'm curious to know what you two think. A shoe with extreme, an extreme forefoot rocker is something I might also be a little bit concerned about just because as you're pitching going through that, that's going to throw you forward a little bit quicker and that might also pitch you forward. What do you think about that? I'm curious. Yeah, with the sharp toe springs, I feel like I notice it more in the posterior structures because you're dipping forward and you're increasing that initial stance a little bit, or not initial swing a little bit quicker, that pre-swing initial swing. I, I notice a lot more like hamstring sensitivity with a lot of people with those. So backside of the knee, not so much front side mechanics, but or low back, maybe they're overextending because they're going into that hip extension moment a little bit quicker yeah. or the hip. But but it's usually right. kind of more posterior structures I tend to see with that. But still, knee is the knee, backside of the knee versus front side of the knee. But and I, I could see some of that because there's no I, real evidence. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen yeah. one way or another. Um, I haven't seen a lot of. Again, I don't think it's causative. Exactly. I think it's more of how does it respond. So, no. But but the idea of that that yeah. I think of the glide ride three um, and how I felt when running. And if I didn't have calf control, I could see where that could be one of those where your your shin just kind of falls forward um, if you're having a really sharp one. But yeah, I'm gonna agree. I'm gonna agree with Nathan and David on this one. Do not use a shoe as a band aid. That's you need to treat this appropriately. Fantastic. Well, that was a fun conversation to dive into patellar tendon causes. What's the anatomy? What's the purpose? Remember, these tendons store a lot of energy. They got a big job to do. So do what you can to keep your tendons healthy, even if you don't have injuries. Find ways to do it. So thank you all for joining us at the Doctors Running Podcast. We really enjoy these conversations that we get to have. And uh, if you have any other further questions regarding any of the topics that we talked about, and maybe something that we didn't address when it comes to patellar tendon issues, please feel free to reach out. Remember, this isn't like medical advice, so we can't go into specifics for your case. Uh, But uh, do ask other broad questions if you have them. We'd love to discuss them further. If you want to check out the other stuff we're doing, you can always go to doctorsfriendly.com, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and our professional site on LinkedIn. You can also check that out as well. We will see you all next time. We did it! Let's go! Yes! Ugh.